the following episode discusses matters of death and suicide. Uh, listener discretion is advised. everyone this is chris and you're listening to one cross radio and we're back and as you can tell by the uh the title of the episode unless you didn't look at it and just blindly downloaded which i guess hey thank you <laughs> we are doing a follow-up uh of sorts to our titanic uh sinking of titanic episode and today we are looking at uh titanic myths um so I'm just going to dive right into it. Now, first things first, I actually feel like I need to apologize for something I said in the last episode. Um, in the last episode, I briefly talked about the American Inquiry, um, but I talked about it fairly dismissively. Um and I, and I was a bit harsh and dismissive of it, and I, I actually feel like I need to apologize for that. Um, one, I don't like when people do that with me, so I shouldn't do that with others. Two, I was conflating uh, the American press treatment of the sinking with the actual inquiry. Um not long after it, and I'm actually recording this before I before the Titanic episode drops, but I kind of want to leave that in there. It'd be easy to edit, like go through and then edit that out. And it's like, aha, you don't know I made a mistake, but I think it's good for people uh, to own up to uh, own up to their mistakes. So I'm deliberately leaving that in so I can apologize for it here. Um so yeah, I was conflating it with the um, with the press treatment and mistreatment of uh, especially one Bruce Ismay, um, when in fact the American in, uh, the American inquiry was very very helpful and is actually looked at more favorably than the British inquiry. Um, so. The American inquiry, uh, like I said, was very helpful. It resulted, um, it along with the British inquiry, resulted in numerous changes to shipping, namely enough lifeboats for all on, all on board, a 24-hour wireless radio watch, um, as well as adjusting the idea of the rockets uh, and what those symbolize. Um, and I'm going to get more on that when I when we start speaking about the Californian. Um, whereas before, um, red was the sign of distress or color uh, or rockets fired like immediately after each other um, of any color. It was primarily um red and then like it needed to be that rapid sequence one right after the other um other uh, but the practice at the time as well um other shipper other ships if they didn't have a wireless um radio they would just fire off um any colored rockets along with uh, Roman candles to identify themselves. Um, Titanic fired off intermittently eight white rockets, but over over a period of time. So there there had been some confusion. But like I said, I'm going to get to that with the uh, more on that when we get to the the 
the Californian. Um, so uh, the advance as well with the 24 uh, radio watch was great as well. The Californian. We'll get there. Uh, much like the American press villainized Bruce Ismay, the British press uh, really tended to villainize the the head of the inquiry, Senator uh, William Alden Smith. Uh, they would take uh, questions that he had phrased and misconstrued them, and remove a lot of the uh, the context uh, to make him and the inquiry look stupid. Um, there was a lot of British pride going on in their press, um, firmed up by the fact that a lot of the earlier press from uh, from the Titanic and, and Mr. Alden Smith and Nazeel, um, they felt like he was gunning at Britain. Um, but that wasn't what Alden Smith was doing. Um, and, and yeah, so they, they misconstrued questions of him uh, that he asked to make him and the inquiry look stupid. Uh, for example, they latched on to one of the questions of could people be in the watertight compartments? Now on the face of it, this is an, this is not a question. Uh, Mr. Alden Smith was not a, uh, a sailor or a boatman. Um, and they were like, this is a dumb question, but the reason he was asking, it was actually quite quite caring. Um, there had been many people uh, asking asking and suggesting this to him. Um, these were distraught family members and friends. Uh, there had been many, like there were many people dying from, from the Titanic sinking and not everybody had been named yet. Some had been unreported. So you had distraught family members and friends being like, has anybody like, what about the watertight compartments? Could you check? Like there were, even as the inquiry was going on, someone burst in asking about one of the officers who had died. They hadn't been informed. Like there had been a tight lipness over the, the casualty list and what happened. So it led to a lot of, a lot of confusion, uh, delusion and, and people clinging to, theories just because they didn't want it to be true that this person was lost. Nolan Smith had up until that point tactfully tried to steer him away from that hope, but then it was like, you know what? I'm going to throw it out there now. That way they can hear it. It sucks, but then they can hear it and then they can have that closure and they can move on. They'll have that answer. Um, and the, the British press like lapped it up like, Oh, that's so stupid. Um, there were other questions as well. Um, one was, he was asking about what made up an iceberg just because people were having a difficulty believing this supposedly unsinkable, un untouchable ship had been destroyed by ice. So he wasn't asking what is ice made of. It was also trying to get to the point scientifically, like, look, is the rock or earth in there? Something that made it harder, something that could have impacted the metal more on the ship, like that was what he was asking, but people latched onto it. Um, and were like, Oh, this idiot doesn't know what ice is made of. Um, so as much as I took the American press to task in the original episode, I do feel it's fair to take the British press to task in this episode. Um, 
the and to give the American inquiry its due. While it did focus on the personal and emotional side of the tragedy, it did so in a very balanced way that made it difficult to whitewash or push aside responsibilities and attitudes at the time, like the British inquiry is very much considered to have done. Uh, that statement <laughs> of whitewashing has been made by many, including um, surviving officer Lightholer, who was no fan of Alden Smith or the American inquiry. Um, but the British one was, let's look at the technical side of things. We can remove, like we can remove it from the people and then we can just kind of go on from there. And a lot of the attitude in Britain at the time was like, no, we don't talk about this kind of thing out in that. We just address it quickly and kind of hush it up. Uh, so the American inquiry deserves its due. And I, I did want to apologize for, for misrepresenting that in the last episode. If you want to learn more about the American inquiry um, and the British inquiry, there's two great sources now, primarily in the American inquiry. Um, it's touched on in the book uh, Titanic Disaster of a of a century by Win Craig Wade. Um, I just finished it. Fantastic book. Um, just utterly great. There's also a script, uh, a, a transcript of all the inquiries um, at titanicinquiry.org. The link will be in the description. Um, I'm also going to shout out the fantastic book as well um, from 1955, uh, Walter Lord's A Night to Remember. Great book. Doesn't go into the inquiry as much, but also really does a great job of painting the picture of what's going on with the sinking and doesn't try to villainize anybody. Um, it really gets you set there. It paints the picture, but it doesn't try to look for heroes and villains, as too many Titanic stuff does, unfortunately. Um, there's been a bit of a romanticizing of the sinking, and with that, I think, comes this like the hero and villainary pieces. Um, okay. So I wanted to own up to, uh, own up to that and give the thing it's due off the bat. Now we're going to dive into some of the disputes. Um, the first one being captain Edward Smith's behavior and fate. So Smith had in, I believe 1907. So about five years before the sinking said this in an interview, I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern ship modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Um and that that seemed to be very true of Smith's and many captains attitudes at the time. Um Smith rightfully by both committees had been found to be responsible for being indifferent to the dangers the ship had faced. Um, now, as we discussed in the first episode, this doesn't come from a place of malice or intention, um, but it was very much informed by the prevailing attitudes, uh, which were informed by and backed by his and others' direct experiences at the time of the sinking. Um, now, I don't think that and I also don't think this undoes Smith's efforts to get as many people, especially women and children off the ship. 
um, Smith was addressed somewhat harshly uh, by the American inquiry, and you can understand why. But if you look at it, and again, hindsight, and we're over 100 years removed from this, um, like, oh my gosh, we're <laughs> like 111 years removed from it. Um, you can see how the thinking and attitudes and practices of the time really informed Smith's inaction and questionable judgment of not, of not slowing down. And like they didn't speed up, but they didn't slow down. They didn't proceed cautiously. Um, but that was the thinking at the time. Um, Smith's fate uh, and death has been up for discussion over the years as it was never directly seen by anybody and his body was never recovered. Uh, conflicting reports have led to several beliefs. Um, the most famous of which is that he went into the wheelhouse and died on the ship. Uh, this was reenacted in many, uh, many adaptations, but possibly um, most famously in Cameron's Titanic. Um, others claimed that he dove off a bridge near collapsible boat B, and that's possible, but it's also possible that witnesses mistook him for Officer Lightholer, who did this exact same thing. And other witnesses, and Lightholer himself, could corroborate that, that he did that very thing. So, yeah, Titanic's a big boat. It's possible, but it's, it's also possible that it was mistaken. Um... Now, there are also several accounts um, that Smith may have been seen in the water near near overturned collapsible B during or after the sinking. Um, Colonel Ultrabald Gracie reported that an unknown swimmer came near the capsized and overcrowded lifeboat and that one of the men on board told him, hold on to what you have, old boy. One more of you aboard would sink us all. And in a powerful voice, the swimmer replied, all right, boys. Good luck and God bless you. Gracie didn't see this man, nor was he able to identify him, but other survivors later claimed to have recognized this man as Captain Smith. Another another person, uh, or the, uh, there was another swimmer, possibly the same, reportedly never asked to come aboard the boat, but instead cheered its occupants saying, good boys, good lads, with the voice of authority. Um, one, one of the collapsible beast survivors, uh, fireman Walter Hurst, tried to reach him with an oar, but the rapidly rising swell carried the man away before he could reach him. Hurst said he was certain this man was Captain Smith. Some of these accounts also describe Smith, uh, apparently, or allegedly Smith, carrying a child to the boat. Harry Sr., one of the stokers uh, from Titanic, and second-class passenger Charles Eugene Williams, who both survived on Collapsible B, stated that uh, Smith, swam with, <laughs> Smith swam with a child in his arms to Collapsible B, um, and, and then Smith presented the child to a steward, after which apparently he swam back to the rapidly foundering ship. Um, William's account, however, differed slightly, claiming that after Smith handed the child over to the steward, he asked what had become a first officer Murdoch. Upon the hearing of Murdoch's demise, Smith pushed himself away from the lifeboat, threw his lifebelt from him, and slowly sank from our sight. He did not come up to the surface again. Now, 
these are very these statements are disputed however um lightholer who uh officer lightholer who survived on um uncollapsibly be never reported seeing captain smith in the water or receiving a child from him. It is also unlikely that any of the survivors on Collapsible B would have been able to identify the individual um, because the lighting in the area was incredibly dim. Like they had night stars and only some and only some of the lifeboats had lamps, as well as it was a very chaotic atmosphere. Like even though the water might be calm, you still have hundreds of people in the water, splashing, screaming, wailing, moaning. Like, there's a lot going on. It's not just a clear shot with a flashlight or anything. Um, so there's a fair speculation that these uh, these instances were more so wishful thinking on the witnesses' parts, and they were hoping that it was the, the captain. Um, now, an officer had been reported to shoot themselves on the Titanic. There was a shooting near Collapsible uh, Sea, um, and one witness said it was Smith. Smith, uh, But this has been heavily refuted by the surviving crew. Uh, no witnesses of, this, of the shooting and then suicide ever described the person with Smith's distinctive white beard, um, which was a feature that made him stand out from any of the other crew, basically. Um, nor was Smith ever found or known to be in possession of a revolver, um, the gun used in this, in that shooting. And we'll get to that shooting in a little bit. Um, so it's very, very unlikely that it was Smith. Um, Smith's fate will probably never fully be known. Uh, there's a poeticness and a sentimentality almost in thinking of the captain going down with ship. That was a prevailing attitude at the time. Uh, and going down in the wheelhouse is is there's a poeticness to it but it's also it might make for a good scene but it's also not anything that's absolutely fact um it's been reported as such but there's enough evidence to show hey it's not absolutely fact much like uh this next part uh so the next one is we're looking at uh first officer murdoch's fate um so I don't have as much to dive into this, but again, this is um, speculation and it's been immortalized on film often, again, looking at Cameron's film in particular. Uh, so there had been uh, there had been a shooting at around collapsible boat C. Um, what had happened was at first there was shooting around it as a warning and then shooting at somebody who wasn't going for it um uh a group of men were swarming uh collapsible boat sea as they were trying to load women and children as they were trying to load and murdoch was of the side like women and children first and then men afterwards but these people like understandably were hysterical um like <laughs> You hear about people not going back to the survivors, but the fears are kind of understandable because when people are fight or flighting in that kind of life or death situation, they're probably not thinking rationally. Um, so there had been a person actually shot and then reportedly an officer committed suicide after uh, after they realized like, hey, I shot somebody, then 
like I'm not getting out of here and they they shot themselves. Um, so this has been this has often been portrayed again, looking at Cameron's film as first officer Murdoch. However, this has never actually been proven. And to be fair, it's also never been disproven. Um, I w- and the reason is eyewitness reports over this have been very conflicting. And while Murdoch did assist with collapsible C, there isn't any def- uh, definitive proof that he was the shooter in question and his body was never found. Um, there were three officers around uh, collapsible C. Um, Murdoch was one, Smith was another, and I, I, I had it earlier. I just didn't write it down. Um, the third officer, uh, a, a different officer as well, um, but he, uh, um, he, he didn't survive either. Uh, so there are many bodies that were never found from this disaster. So with that, there's, there's nothing to authenticate it. So again, it's just one of those things where this is something that often gets put in, uh, media involving Titanic, but it's not necessarily fact. Moving on. Uh, so next up. Uh, it's on the train of, hey, well, it's, it's being accepted. In fact, it isn't necessary, isn't necessarily. Now this one is, is likely. Um, so this one is, um, my brain hiccuped. This next one is about near my God to thee. Uh, the hymn that was famously and has been again in numerous films, debatably most famously in Cameron's Titanic um, was a um, it was a hymn that the band apparently played um, while the ship was uh, was sinking and was the final piece of music played. Um, now, many people um, attributed this to uh, this to happening. Now, there had been a ship um, that went down in 1906 where everybody did sing the hymn. So there is a basis for it. And it's possible that the legend started there and the people on Titanic who heard of this attributed it to it, it thinking like, Oh, that's what's happening here. But again, uh, there are conflicting reports from people who were uh, survivors who did say, yes, I heard them play near my God to thee. others. Um, others said the the band played, um, uh, famous waltz song de autumn um which the band would have been instructed like hey as there's all this chaos we tr- we want you to keep people calm uh so play play happy music so a waltz waltz would be inclined but at some point it's obvious what's happening the ship's going down the band members know it's going down they know they're going down um so it is entirely possible that this did get that it did get played i'd say it's it's probable but there's no guarantee um now the other thing complicating it is near my god to the comes in three known and a fourth kind of unknown uh, a pseudo version so the three known versions are bethany horbury and autumn and the quasi version is actually um what I used as the theme music for this episode. Cause again, I'm thinking we're, it's a somber topic. So the, the friendly theme doesn't work as well. Um, doesn't seem as appropriate. Um, but a, um, 
a lesser known version, uh, a Methodist version called uh, uh, Propier Dio. Now that one is it like many sources do think it was likely the autumn version of near my God to others. Other experts have really reported it to be proper uh, Propier Dio. This one is, is disputed and understandably, understandably so, but I'd say it's, it's likely played, but it's also not a thing that's a hundred percent fact. And it's just one that comes up frequently um, on many lists that talk about like things that the Titanic isn't uh, like things you knew about things you got wrong about the Titanic. Anyways. Um, okay. So this next section is going to be long and I'm also going to be uh, shouting out um, <clears throat> one person in particular uh, who I'd say, even though last week, not last week, the last episode, yes, I did go to bat for uh, Mr. J. Bruce Ismay. And I did say like, yes, I would, I would personally consider him more of a hero of this story than a villain. Now, I'm not saying he was a hero, but he it's been proven in the inquiries that things he was made out to do didn't happen. And he actively participated in helping in saving lives. Um, that should be categorized as heroic. I'm not saying he is a hero, but it was people paint him as the villain and say and have blamed him and the American press at the time chastise him for it um no i'd be like if we're on a villain to hero scale he's more on that hero side person who we're going to talk about shortly is unquestionably a hero and was officially recognized as such now i'm going to get to him in a second uh so this section is tied into uh one of the more famous pieces with titanic um there was a mystery ship spotted about anywhere commonly cited from five to twelve so most estimates place it around ten uh ten miles away and that ship turned out to be the california the californian so this section is called the californian's lack of action so the californian in both inquiry inquiries was to be found to be responsible uh, for not more people being saved. Uh, the Californian was about 10 miles away of the Titanic and observed the ship from about 11 p.m. or 2300 until around uh, 158 uh, or possibly up until it's sinking. Um, now, this is where I'm going to tie it into earlier. They did see rockets fired. But as mentioned above, the rockets, the rockets at the time for distress were red or any color fired in very rapid su succession. Titanic was firing white rockets, but they were very intermittent. Uh, there wasn't like an interval of 30 seconds. It would be fire one. 20 minutes later, a fire second one. The first one uh they thought was potentially shooting star, which they had seen many of that night as well. Um, so I, I might not, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate or anything, but I'm also trying to say like, yes, mistakes were made, but again, this was, I think this points to a lot of the issues at the time. Um, 
and attitudes at the time. Okay, so uh, Titanic was firing white rockets. Further, the wireless had been shut down for the day um, after before a good, I believe, a good hour before Titanic sent out its uh, CQD and then SOS. Um, this was customary practice at the time. And it was not told to be turned back on. Now, this was something very frustrating to everybody uh, involved in the inquiry and a question that many, myself included, have wondered for years. Like, man, if you had, it's one of those things where the sinking of the Titanic has so many ifs, like if this had been done, if this had been done. Um, and this is one of those frustrating ifs. Um so, but it the fact is, for whatever reason, it wasn't told to turn back on. Uh, Captain Captain Stanley Lord did, however, um, uh, he did. Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. Um, he did, however, uh, ask them to reach out to the ship with Morse lamps to see what was happening because people were they were kind of confused. Uh, what was going on now also to to paint a fair picture for the Californian it had stopped for the night it was in a nice field um it had even messaged the Titanic earlier that evening saying hey we stopped for the night we're surrounded by ice um but anyways uh so they had tried to reach out with the Morse lamps but they never saw a response and they tried again and they never saw a response so that's kind of what happened. And as they never received a response, they never turned the thing back on. They didn't go. It's frustrating, but they didn't. Um, it's quasi understandable, but it's also like, man, this was this inaction did not help anything. Um, at the time of the inquiries, both the British and American teams, the teams uh, condemned the Californian and Captain Lord for its lack of action, saying it could have saved most or all of the lives. Now, this is where I'm going to interject a little bit. Um, this has been later refuted. Um, so the inaction is, of course, like I mentioned, very frustrating and an indi indication of the complacency um and lack of clear communication at the time amongst shippers. Um, this assertion is inaccurate. Uh, given the timeline of events, namely that the Titanic's didn't, the Titanic didn't start firing rockets until around 1245 in the morning, even if the Californian had been able to go to its rescue right then, uh, and go right then and there as soon as the, and we're talking about the first rocket. Um, even if it left right then, uh, and there, you would have to add in, it would take, have to take time to navigate out of the ice field. It was surrounded by its top speed is 14 knots and a knot is a nautical mile per hour. And it works out to be roughly 1.15 land-based miles per hour or for the rest of the world, uh, 1.852 kilometers per hour. Um, keeping that in mind, like as it's waving around the ice, um, it, if it was going at its maximum speed, 
that time would have it arriving around the time of Titanic making its final plunge. Um, there is no way it could have uh, it could have arrived as soon as the Titanic hit the Berg. Anybody who says like, "Oh, the, if the Californian just came, everybody would have been saved," that's factually not true. Like that's that's not an accurate picture. Um, even at best speed, it would have arrived after it sank. Now, there have been estimates in the past that it could have saved some additional lives. That's nothing's firm on that, though. Now, it could have been an additional two or th- up to an additional two or three hundred, which would have been fantastic and amazing. But it's also not 100 percent clear. So I love that this has been over time recognized like it couldn't have all it could have done was save those in the lifeboats like the Carpathia did later. And this is backed by a 1992 review of the case by the Marine Accident Investigation Branch, which is a UK government body. They concluded that had the California reacted to the distress signals, uh, they would have been unlikely to achieve anything more than the Carpathia. And that would have been, they could have rescued those who escaped. Nonetheless, they still condemned the inaction, which which is fair. Um, now, this is where I'm going to add in a bit more of my personal opinion and also give the shout out that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> so I think what also adds to the anger um, at the time and still uh, towards the Californian and its cap- captain Stanley Lord's inaction was the complete opposite response from the Carpathia and its captain. Arthur Roston. As soon as the Carpathia received the distress message from the Titanic, it immediately began its 58 mile or 93 kilometer journey to rescue the ship. It knew it would have to pass by ice. It was going out of its way. It was like the opposite direction of where it needed to go, and it had passengers. But Captain Arthur Roston was just like, no, we got to go do this. So he also um, he also communicated clearly and effectively with this crew and came up with the following plan that worked perfectly. And this this stuff is awesome. So uh, the captain notified the chief engineer to call another watch of stokers and make all possible speed towards the, the last reported site of the Titanic. They also helped speed up the ship by removing heat uh, like steam that was going off to heaters and stuff throughout the ship. So as much of the steam was possible, was focusing towards the speed. Uh, he communicated to the first officer to knock off all work, which men were doing on the deck um, to, to them, watch the deck, prepare all lifeboats, take out spare gear and have them ready for turning outboard in case they came across any, uh, any jeopardy. And they themselves had an iceberg. Um, he, there were a couple doctors on the board, on board, and then he split them up accordingly. So the English doctor with assistance was to remain in the first class dining room, help first class, uh, um, 
passengers from the Titanic as soon as they boarded. An Italian doctor with assistance was to remain in the second class dining room and do the same. And an Hungarian doctor with assistance was to remain in the third class dining room as well. Each doctor was to have supplies of restorative stimulants and everything to hand for immediate needs of probable wounded or sick. Um, then uh, purser with assistant purser and chief steward were there to receive the passengers at different gangways, controlling their stewards and assisting Titanic passengers to the dining rooms, etc. And also to get Christian surnames as all survivors as soon as possible to send by wireless. Um, there was an inspector, steerage stewards, and master at arms to control the Carpathia steerage passengers and keep them out of the third class dining hall, also to keep them out of the way off the deck to prevent confusion, which is fair. There are passengers here. Um, as you read about the Titanic and the state of the world at the time, uh, third class was really, in a way, left off to itself. Um, and there was confusion and panic. And actually, in the night to remember, there was an interview with someone from the Carpathia who was certain as some of this stuff was going on that the ship had been like their ship had been damaged. Um, so this plan is, it, it's actually perfect. Um, so th there was to be a chief steward and that all hands would be called to have coffee, et cetera, ready to serve out to survivors and, and the crew of, the Carpathia as they're going to be working like crazy over the next little bit. Um, as well, have coffee, tea, soup, and other hot uh, hot things in each saloon, blankets, and at the gang gangways for some of, like, for the passenger, uh, for the passengers and the rescued. Um, if they wanted to see all rescued care for it and immediate wants attended to. Rostrin's own cabin and the officials' cabins were to be given up. Smoke rooms, library, dining rooms, etc. would be utilized to accommodate the survivors. All spare berths in the steerage section of the Carpathia is going to be utilized for the Titanic's passengers, and they'd get all of the steerage passengers grouped together. The Carpathia's steerage passengers grouped together. Stewards were to be placed in each alleyway to assure to reassure the Carpathia's passengers, should they inquire about the noise in getting our boats out, etc., or the working on the engines, just to be like, look, everything's safe to reassure. Like I mentioned, someone had like this exact thing happened as referenced in an interview in the book A Night to Remember. Um for the chiefs and first officers, all hands to be called, uh, get coffee and prepare to swing out all boats. All gangway doors are to be opened, electric, electric sprays in each gangway and overside, a block with a line rove hooked in each gangway, a chair sling at each gangway for getting up sick or wounded, uh, boat swains chairs, um, pilot ladders, and canvas ash bags to be at each gangway, the canvas ash bags for children. These were to help assist get people up out of the lifeboats. Um, and all lifeboats, as mentioned, were prepared and swung out in case they had to go out or in case there any thing befell their ship. Uh, Rostin was rightfully recognized as a hero for his efforts and his plans, and he was awarded numerous medals, thanks from Congress, and more accolades for his efforts in saving the survivors 
from the Titanic. They were prepping for everybody. They got a lot less than they were prepping for, but still, they immediately dropped what they were doing, went at top speed at for 93 kilometers to rescue to rescue this ship. And they were going through hazardous ways. Um, so he was rightfully recognized as this. Um, and as, as the hero that he was. So I do think that it plays into some of the issues people have with the Californian and it's uh, Captain Stanley Lord, because while it's been established that they probably couldn't have done more, the lack of effort and action on their part, while being so much closer to the Titanic, doesn't endear itself or look good at all in compared when compared to even the barest minimum of the Carpathia's and its captain's efforts. So the Californian is not responsible for more people dying, but it could have helped more. It potentially could have helped more people live at the least um, or at most, not necessarily by many, um, but the survivors could have been the survivors uh, could have gotten out of the water, out of some of the compromised boats sooner. So that's the most of the section. I'll, I will quickly touch on uh, one of the conspiracy theories, which um, ties into, I've called it switcheroo slash deliberate sinking. It was the theory that the um, the White Star Line uh, was looking at the ship as a loss uh, after the Olympic had been damaged earlier uh, earlier that year. So in theory, uh, like the theory posited that um, basically a week uh, after a week at dry dock, they, uh, they switched the ships. And uh, so the ship that went sent out was the already compromised Olympic um, just with Titanic decorations and that the Titanic stayed in dry dock. Um, I'm going to quote British historian Gareth, Gareth Russell here. Uh, he calls this theory, and I agree with him a thousand percent, so painfully ridiculous that one can only uh, only lament the thousands of trees which lost their lives to provide the paper on which this theory has been articulated. He also notes that since the sister ships had significant interior architectural and design differences, switching them secretly in a week would be nearly impossible from a practical standpoint. A switch would also not be economically worthwhile, since the ship owners could have simply dam further damaged the ship while it was docked, for instance by setting a fire, and collected the insurance money from that accident, which would have been far less severe and infinitely less stupid than sailing her out to the middle of the Atlantic with thousands of people and their luggage on board and ramming her into an iceberg. I love that quote for so many reasons, and the reason I briefly wanted to touch on the conspiracies is I understand conspiracy theories. I understand questioning, of, questioning the official reports and the narrative. It's good to be inquisitive. It's good not to automatically accept everything that we're told right away. There's no problem with that. Problems have emerged, and we've seen this over the last couple of years, where 
wild conspiracy theories are spun and can lead to dangerous thinking, to accurate, like to inaccurate and harmful misinformation, um, to lies that slander and later hurt. Um, as much as we don't like not being in control, the fact is the ship, through human error, which was identified, like, again, informed by many inaccurate attitudes at the time, hit an iceberg at a glancing blow, damaged the ship, and sunk. There are other conspiracy theories that I don't really want to get into, and there's not as much evidence to them, and they're also stupid. But this one, because it's not a, I, I ever, at least once a year, go down the Titanic rabbit hole. And not a time goes by where I don't see, especially that one, uh, pop up where it's like the true story about the Titanic, a YouTube video, an article or someone, someone who finds this and finds the flimsy evidence, pieces it together because they really like it and the clickbaity stuff and they post it. This historian shuts it down harshly and wonderfully. So I, wa I wanted to close with that. All right. So uh, that's going to wrap the episode today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, I kind of, I have a fascination with some disasters. So there might be more of these kind of episodes. Um, and Titanic will always be interesting and fascinating to me. One, it's as tragic as it is it is fascinating and there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it too i also really really dig the cameron movie and i watch it at least once a year um so it is it's one of those it's one of those things that happen that i've just i've gotten attachment to say what you will about that um and after doing the first episode i did want to split up and address some of the myths and some of the stuff that's um uh, that it's disputed even though it's been perpetuated uh prominently in films um so i hope you enjoyed today's episode again if you if this has been at all interesting to you um if you want to learn more about the titanic um especially the inquiry like i said there's the link below titanicinquiry.org oh my gosh the amount of effort that the people put into that is insane i love them for it um as well as the excellent books, um, 1955's A Night to Remember by Walter Lord and 2012's The Titanic uh, Disaster of a Century by Wynn Craig Wade. Now, that is an updated version of an earlier book, he, uh, like of a book he released in 1977. I don't have the title there, but it is a fantastic book that looks at the sinking, mostly looks at the inquiry, but it does so in a concurrent fashion. Um, so when the inquiry's hitting about uh, particular things going on with the uh, going on with the ship and the sinking, it's then giving you a lot of that first eyewitness stuff in a timeline fashion. So it it it's a very interesting book. Um, also, if you uh, if you like it all what I do and you feel you can support uh, myself uh, this podcast in any way, feel free to hit up our Patreon um, and become a patron to our show. Shout outs uh, to our awesome patrons, um, Bex and Nathan. Thank you guys so much. Um, patrons get the episodes early, sometimes super early. They also get early uh, exclusive episodes, behind the scenes stuff. If you feel you can. Uh, 
contribute at all, that'd be that'd be awesome. Uh, also, feel free to hang, hit up our link tree, and you can check out our our other shows that we're a part of. Um, Radio Arcade with uh, my boo Christian, as well as the infrequent uh, Power Bombs and Pile Drivers Wrestling Appreciation Podcast. All that being said, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Stay safe. Let me know what you thought of today's episode. Be good to one another. God bless, my friends. Take care. Peace.